0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Brad Vaughn, formerly called Jackson Wu. He does explain why he went by that pen name for a couple of decades. Uh, we, we get into that um, towards the middle middle end of the podcast. Brad has a PhD in applied theology from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, earned his MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Seminary, an MA in philosophy from Texas A&M. He's the author of a few books, um, Saving God's Face, Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes, Seeking God's Face and the Cross in Context. And, uh, Brad has become ki- kind of a, an expert in honor, shame, understanding honor, shame cultures and how that uh, influences our reading of the Bible, how it affects our ecclesiology and so on and so forth. So that becomes the bulk of our conversation. We do get into some controversies that he found himself pulled into, uh, recently. So, um, I don't know if that's, I need to give a warning for that, whatever, but just know that that's kind of where we end up going toward the end of the podcast. So, uh, really enjoy getting to know, uh, Brad. So, uh, please welcome to the show the one and only Dr. Brad Ball. Brad, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's funny because we recently got in touch, but a mutual really good friend of ours, uh, Spencer McCush, has told me for years that I need to have you on the podcast. So this is, uh, yeah, long overdue. I'm super glad we got reconnected.
1: Yeah, I did absolutely. I've been told that you and I are are kindred spirits, and so uh, yeah, I'll I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, both of us.
0: We could both be. We could both be idiots. (laughs) (laughs) So you were uh, ministering. Do you you like the term missionary? I just had a conversation with another guy who says I think we need to ditch the term missionary. But you were.
1: It's it's fine. I I because I'm less American than I used to be. I don't. I'm not into some of the word policing that I'm okay. seeing in American culture. So yeah, I'm a cross-cultural worker, missionary, whatever.
0: Okay. Cross-cultural worker. I, I like that a lot better. So you were a cross-cultural worker in China for uh, how long? A couple of decades? Or? Uh,
1: yeah, 2003 to 2019. What led you to that, that kind of ministry? Honestly, it was one day I felt the Lord saying, go to China. And I turned to my wife, I go, you know, as weird as it sounds, I think we're supposed to go to China. And she goes, all right, let's do it. Just like it, that. It was wow. yeah. It, it was right after I'd finished my master's in philosophy, and I decided then, yeah, I don't want to be a PhD in philosophy. And I was looking at some different things, and that was back when the church planning movement was like really big and like you know emergent stuff. So I was thinking that, but then guy just said, no, 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 you're going to go be, be high being obscurity in China.
0: Did you do a lot of kind of cross cultural research before you got there, or because I mean, you're we're going to end up talking a lot about just cross-cultural ministry, honor, shame, cultures versus American power. Is it power, fear, whatever the, um, yeah. Did you know a lot of
1: that going in or did you learn on the ground kind of what cross-cultural ministry looked like? On the ground, but you'd be surprised actually at how much my background prepared me in a very weird way. I grew up in East Texas, a poor family. Uh, a lot of my family members call themselves white trash, um, or trailer trash. So like that's very honor, shame oriented there. And so when we went to China, I'm seeing these honor, shame dynamics and I'm going, wait a minute, there's, it's, it's different, but there's some similarities here. And so I just got really curious and started digging into everything I could, uh, it, it, cultural adjustments always hard, yeah, but, uh, but also at the time that was when John Piper was kind of at his, like, everybody was listening to John Piper and he was talking about the glory of God. And I thought, wait a minute, they're talking about face and honor and my background and glory to God. Okay. I really got to dive into this and figure out how all this works together with the Bible and Chinese culture.
0: Interesting. What, what kind of ministry were you involved in? Like when you went over like church church or teaching?
1: Initially it was teaching English and evangelism. Okay, uh, But then it moved pretty quickly into church planting, helping uh, with that. And then most of the time was spent, uh, I was part of a founding team that started a underground seminary, uh, an accredited seminary for the underground house church. That's what I spent uh, the most of our time doing.
0: For people that maybe don't know anything about the church in China or Christianity in China, give, give us a kind of a one-on-one overview of you you go over there and what is Christianity like?
1: Sure, over there? Uh, Everything you've heard is true somewhere, you know, <laughs> Yeah. so it really is. And so in the, you know, China's kind of face like it looks like a chicken if you look at a map. And kind of at the belly of the chicken uh, is where most believers are on the East Coast. That's where a lot of population is. Uh, very organized they don't work in terms of denominations. they work in relational networks uh very large church but increasingly you know increasingly they're facing more and more opposition and persecution because of of the government and so yes there's an openness more in the south but the more closer to beijing you get and of course religious persecution is very very severe the more west you go so it's it's a little of everything
0: okay is so i mean we all hear i mean I don't want to assume too much knowledge from my audience, but most people have heard, you know, there's just this massive growth in Christianity, largely through underground house churches. There is a state-recognized church that tends to be maybe a little more nominal, um, but the real vibrancy is happening with the underground persecuted house church. That's at least kind of the narrative I hear. Is, is that
1: largely correct? Is it, does it depend on the region? and In general, uh, I'm going to have more vibrancy, more zeal and evangelism and concern for scripture and so forth and so on in the house church. But the truth is, there in a lot of places, a lot more overlap. And you know, I've done a lot of my training in the back rooms of three self churches, the public churches. Okay. Uh, you know, because they had protection. You know, so a lot of the kind of reforms, the socialist Christianity that's being put out, that's all through the public church. So,
0: okay.
1: uh, th- there's health and dishealth everywhere. But in the whole, that's a fair, fairish characterization. Okay.
0: And what what percentage would you say are Christians in China? Do we have data oh. on that?
1: Uh, it's all estimation. I mean, you're dealing with, uh, I won't go to numbers, but I would say something you're dealing with something like 7%. It depends on the number, you know, because some people look at a hundred, you know, 150 million, you're somewhere dealing with 60 million. That's so, you know, the, it depends on the range and what you count. So I would say somewhere around a hundred million is about the middle of where everybody guesses.
0: So I heard, um, in the little research I did, so like like in 1948, is it when Christianity became illegal, or was there some kind of
1: shift right after World yeah. War II? Yeah, 49 is when there was the big push for the missionaries to get out. Yeah.
0: Okay, and there was a uh, maybe how many like a few hundred thousand Christians at that time or something, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's grown to at least a yeah. hundred million in sixty plus right, years. Right. That's insane. Yeah, so, I mean,
1: so um, so yeah. I mean, from almost, I mean, very little to what I don't know, actually more less than like five percent. i do doing math right now, but yeah. uh Especially, especially if you count house church and and the hidden network that can't be counted, the public church. So it's really, it's really blown up, and it came about in all the persecution, especially in the sixties and seventies.
0: They can't. So the persecution, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church kind of thing. Like the more, it's persecuted, absolutely the more it
1: grew. A lot of outsiders thought, well, there's probably not going to be much left of the church. And then in 19 around 1980, when the church China opened up again, all of a sudden they saw this massive group of Christians and they're like blown away. And so wh- when you see this tightening and restriction now in the Chinese church, uh, far, a lot of us are less worried in the sense of like, will the church survive sort of thing? Because. Uh, they thrive uh, in tough situations. They are very connected. they're very communal oriented. They know how to evangelize. and and some I know some believers think this is a good thing, the more recent kind of wave of persecution resistance because they see it as a purging because being a Christian got a little too comfortable. Oh really? It just it just became more like, oh, you could do it. And so anybody could be a Christian because it wasn't looked down upon as much by the government. But now the government's jumping in. people will. Go ah, never mind.
0: So there's a there's a recent kind of uh, growing persecution of the church in China.
1: Yeah, the current president uh, Xi Jinping is basically has no term limits. He kind of has given the same power as Mao Zedong had back in the 60s and 70s, and clamping down on anything that's deemed as foreign. And, and basically, all religion is deemed foreign because uh because of marxist you know socialism which ironically is foreign
0: yeah um yeah so china it, it would you say it's yeah more agnostic atheistic as a whole as a culture not necessarily because it has what uh, buddhist roots or what's the yeah,
1: it, yeah? it's extremely nominal cultural buddhism you know like okay. uh, you know burning money to ancestors uh it's just different ways of honoring you know the family a form of religion is just not a really big deal. It's more like folk religion at at best, you know, honoring well, like ancestors. Bud-
0: Buddhism isn't technically a religion anyway, right? Or-
1: yeah, it depends on which researcher you talk to, I guess. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> it has religious life, but there's not like a single deity or a deities that it worships? And,
1: and, I don't know. Of course, it, that's going to depend on what kind of thread okay. of of Buddhism, you know, Theravada Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, so forth and so on. But for us in our work, we didn't have to deal with, it was actually a lot easier to do ministry in China than in India, because in India you have to deconstruct a whole lot and then build back up. But in China, there's like, there's like no religion, no anything for a whole lot of people. And you're starting from kind of nothing. It's actually, that's actually kind of convenient.
0: I've been to Kathmandu a few times where I think Buddha's from there, right? Isn't he? The Buddha? Um, They have the whole... um, Oh, I forgot what it's called the main kind of, um, temple or whatever. Where... Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, You
1: know, it's, it's, it's a diverse country. And so I'm sure people who are familiar with China are going to object to something I say, but as yeah. I said, something is true everywhere. Right, 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 right. <laughs> And I spent most of my time working with the house church.
0: Okay. 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 So let's uh, talk to us about the, the different cultural dynamics specifically. Like I would love to get dive, do a deep dive into, um, h- how an honor shame culture operates how that kind of reconfigures maybe how they approach Christianity um and how that compares with uh, the U.S. context in particular. I guess you can say a Western um, country.
1: All right, well, you'll have to cut me off because <laughs> this is a big question, right? Yeah. Uh, so first off, when we talk about honor-shame cultures, it's kind of a misnomer because the truth is all cultures uh, are honor-shame cultures, so to speak. All care about honor. All care about shame. The only difference is that these traditional cultures are far more aware of it. Okay. More explicitly aware of it, whereas in the states and a lot of western countries it's kind of more hidden and we hide it under different ways. But honor just to put it simply honor is a person's right to respect. You know, so it's qualities that are deemed praiseworthy. You know, in Chinese they talk about face. You know, it's it talks about your kind of your your status, your position, right? And that could be because of something you did or somebody you know, right? And then shame especially from a Chinese perspective is this sense of, of propriety or you're being sensitive to the opinions of others. And and we get this, this is not just a Chinese thing because if I said to you, Hey, Preston, you're shameless. I don't think you'd probably take that as a compliment. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the Chinese are just simply far more aware of that. Whereas uh, I think in, in the West we've hidden it in all sorts of different ways. And so a lot of my dissertation work and all the books I've written are constantly exploring how does this stuff these dynamics since these are human dynamics how do they play out in scripture and, and since they're human dynamics how does it play out in other contexts can, maybe give us an example
0: of a of a social situation that kind of illustrates really strong kind of in your face honor shame dynamics um
1: sure like so uh, let's just think about in the west i mean uh first off honor and shame can be uh, achieved or what we call ascribed. okay so Based on what you do, you know you're a really good runner, or you get all A's, you you get honored, right? If you uh, do commit some kind of crime or say something negative, you know you, you'd be shamed, right? And if you, uh, the same thing with position, if my last name were Trump, Obama, Bush, or something like that, I would get a certain amount of honor or shame. If just because I walk into a room, depending on your kind of political persuasion, right, mm-hmm. uh, the, the CEO of an organization will get a certain amount of respect, regardless of their moral failings, because they're in a certain position, okay. you know, regardless of who's a president, I'm going to walk in, I'm going to respect the office. Right. I think a lot of the confusion, though, around this whole conversation of honor and shame is because a lot of scholars are looking past each other. Like uh, you have like Brene Brown talking about psychological shame, which is more like low self-esteem, right? Mm. But then you also have like social shame, which is like what anthropologists talk about. That's like, uh, you know, when you're publicly shaming somebody or you're bullying somebody, okay? Uh, Jesus is dying on the cross, he was shamed on the cross, mm. okay? And so people tend to, and there's moral shame, this idea like the sensitivity to what's proper, what's right, okay? So these are all interconnected. But they also have a certain amount of independence. So I could do something that gets the scorn and shame of my community, but then not feel, you know, shameful myself. So that's one of the reasons I think people sometimes have a lot of half truths when they think about shame is, oh, it's just bad or it's just psychological. And the truth is that shame and guilt are both objective and subjective. You know, it's not like one is like real and and the Bible stuff and this other stuff is just mere cultural stuff. Mm. Because you could feel guilt, or you could be guilty, right? Right. Subjective, objective. I could feel ashamed, and I could be shamed, like by others. Objective. So, and there, and all of these are in scripture. So, what? One of my big goals of the past few years has been to help people see that it's not a matter of guilt is the Bible and shame is culture. Is that shame is actually a broader concept than guilt and it's all throughout
0: the bible. Interesting. Oh, well, you see the language of shame all over the place. Um do you like the the distinction that you know we, most people have heard, you know that guilt is the feeling you get when you did something wrong, whereas shame is the feeling you get for who you are, you know. So that it's not you did something wrong, it's you've been made to feel like you are a you know, bad person.
1: Um, yeah, you're talking about like the guilt about what you do and shame yeah. about who you are. Yeah, and is that too... Si- yeah, what do you think I, I mean, it's it's certainly a simplification. There's a lot more that could be said, but I, I don't mind it in the sense that shame uh, deals with not only what you do, because I could do something shameful, right? And, and But it also is who I'm associated with, right? I mean, you think about, we don't want to be associated with the, those, those people, right? All right. Right, you, no. you know, because the... You, Shame by association, not really guilt by association, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you yeah. know, but but guilt is more about you know the things you do and about transgressing boundaries, and it sh- guilt doesn't move you to do things positively, but a sense of shame does because I want to be a certain type of person, and so it moves me forward to do right and to and so I actually find it helpful because shame is more about identity, and that's that's about as Christian as, of an issue as you get.
0: When you first started kind of maybe seeing the different cultural dynamics I'm sure it was early on in your, in your time in China, how did that kind of reconfigure your approach to ministry? Like, did it, did it have a radical effect on just your, yeah, your ecclesiology and evangelism and all this stuff? And what did that look, what did that shift look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've really, I've made a writing career out of just teasing out the implications and my whole dissertation was on the doctrine of salvation in terms of honor and shame. It started off because was we were trying to share the gospel with people Uh, the word for sin in China is uh, crime. And so you say, hey, you're a sinner. You say you're a criminal. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? I mean, just no idea. Because remember, they they don't have a Christianized idea of sin. You're literally telling them you're a criminal. And they're like, ah, okay, whatever, guys. Peace out, right? (laughs) And so I realized that, okay, if we can't get sin right, well, there's a whole lot of other stuff that we can't get right, right? And so I started using kind of this word picture of sin is like publicly spitting in your father's face and you see them. Oh, 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 okay. That makes sense. And we didn't spend like five conversations trying to get through what sin was. They go, Oh, that makes sense. And then we could keep going. Right. It's far more relational. They understand this whole idea of face. Right. Uh, Which is one reason why my first book was titled saving God's face. Because given this dynamics of God's honor. Right. And so that's what got me into it. And then again, the, Listen a lot of John Piper. I realized that if if he's right and that glory is such a big deal in the Bible, it should permeate so much more of our scripture than our theology than it actually practically does for most people. And so that's where I dived into you know all sorts of issues of salvation, and it led me to talk about you know understand faith and all that. basically any concept you have. Uh, there's some kind of honor shame dynamic involved. How would you when
0: you talk about salvation, like how would you describe? what salvation is in a more honor, shame context.
1: Yeah. Well, and I will say this is important to say in an honor, shame context, because, uh, I don't think that we pick, we can pick and choose because honor and shame is in the Bible, just like guilt is and just like uncleanness and all these other metaphors. So it's not an either or, but I think first off, you start off with this idea of understanding sin. And so sin, Paul defines in Romans, by the way, as dishonoring God, we can, Del- delving into that as you want, rather than this breaking of just a crime abstractly, and so we become shameful. Romans one comes to mind, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, salvation is the removing of that shame and the receiving of glory, mm. right? One of the my favorite passages that funny enough, no one talks about, even though it's more explicit than righteousness imputation <laughs> uh, that people talk about, but is in John seventeen twenty two where uh, Jesus prays to the father saying the glory that you have given me, yeah. I have given to them.
0: Yeah. What does that mean?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that's, isn't that, isn't that worth the discussion? But I mean, just think about that. No one talks about that. And that's explicit. If I came in this podcast to say, Hey, Preston, by the way, I got Jesus glory. He'd be like, uh, okay, we're, we're stopping this right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what does it mean that yeah, unpack, like, how would you explain that? Oh,
1: well, well, I mean, at, at a broad stroke, <laughs> Uh, I think it does have to do with the fact that we are uh, we are able to do Paul's language We're we're conformed to his likeness and we're able to manifest uh, his worth uh, in, in our lives. So we have the glory of the Father by virtue of association and union with him. Uh, I mean, that's a broad, broad overview, but I think that's getting at the same basic idea that you're getting at in Romans 8, 28 to 30 was conformed to image uh, of Christ you know, okay. leading to glorification.
0: So all of sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, meaning we don't live up to. We, up
1: we lack the glory of God. And then the glory of God in Romans, a little bit nuanced, as you know, you've, you've, you've okay. studied Romans a lot, but this idea of ultimate manifestation of, of, of who God is and his character and how we're designed to be. All right, so uh having the identity that we were supposed to be in that vocation that we're supposed to be and we, and we lack that. we've uh, basically muddied ourselves up so that we can't uh, image that. And so that's what we lack. and how have we done that? Romans 2:23 is so explicit where Paul directly defines sin as uh, dishonouring God mm. and and he he cites Isaiah. For, as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among Gentiles because of you. Making it very clear, the, the big problem here is not merely that you've broken an abstract law. It's that you've dishonored God. And, and you see that that's how unrighteousness is described in chapter 1. People are oftentimes shocked when they read Romans 1 to 3 that Paul consistently is defining sin in terms of honor, shame, glory, not merely Law, yeah. law code breaking.
0: So, you, so, so you've dishonored the father by misrepresenting who he is in, in how we're acting? Is that, would that be a- I
1: mean, you know, and, and as a colonel, yeah. yeah. Uh, basically not reflecting who he is, not showing his worth, right? Yeah. Um, and that comes out in all sorts of ways. So whose pleasure do you seek? You know, uh, who do you want to receive praise or give face? So like Jesus actually... We're talking about Romans a lot in faith. Well, Jesus actually defines faith in terms of face okay, or glory. So John 5, he says, how can you believe uh, when you receive glory for one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And he's saying you can't believe if you're not seeking the glory that comes from God. Romans 2, Paul actually says the righteous will seek after glory and honor. I mean, these are things that are in very popular books. We're not talking about Habakkuk in third Hezekiah or you know, these other <laughs> yeah. books that people haven't heard of, right? Like John and Romans, it's overtly seek glory and honor. The issue is, is, what kind of honor are you seeking? What kind of glory are you seeking? And that's why Jesus says in John 12, if anyone seeks me, the father will honor him. I mean, that's an, that's an enticement.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And do you find that like honor shame cultures just have a better handle on the Bible when they, I mean, cause these categories, like, yeah, we, like, I remember being exposed to kind of honor, shame ways of, of thinking. And again, we we all think that way on some level, but, you know, cultures are very dominant. And, and going back and just seeing how pervasive the language is in the Bible, I'm like, I just glossed right over this. I mean, i, I um despising the shame, you know, Hebrews 12 and, and even the cross. You know, we think of, man, that's such a painful way to die, which obviously it is. But the language most often used is not pain. In fact, I don't, is there ever pain language? Used to, I mean, it's, it's mainly, it's mainly shame. And that, that's the design. I mean, the, you know, the Romans really developed crucifixion as a way of shaming the, the person, his family, anybody who was associated with them, which when the when the disciples scatter, it's like, yeah, they didn't want to be connected with this publicly shamed person. Cause then they received that, you know?
1: Yeah. So there's a few points in what you said. First, your first question was, what, do honor shame cultures to get the Bible better? And I would say, no but they're they had the tools to get more of the bible than mm-hmm. we get okay and what i mean by this is that i found again and again that people from so-called honor shame cultures their honor shame perspective actually prevents them from developing an honor shame theology i know that sounds backwards but honor shame culture is really value tradition right it's, there's hierarchy there's you know an appreciation for history okay um and so what does that mean well A lot of the theology has been developed in the West, and so you'll have a, hey, this is what we've always believed, and then they will at first. I found say, I'm not sure. I haven't heard this in my reading of Sproul or whoever Calvin that you know. I've been these many of these conversations where they'll say that, but then I'll start pointing verses out like I've been talking to you, and then every time you see this go this is so Chinese, <laughs> this, like, where'd you find this? I'm like, it's just there in the Bible, right? Cause it's not just where the words honor and shame are, but think about uh, language like the poor, the deaf, you know, mm-hmm. Gentiles was, was a shameful term. You know, uh, you know, uh, you're an outsider, right? You're not, you're not one of us barren, right? Those are all shame laden words to be welcomed, to be adopted, reconciled, you know, blessed, clothed. Those are honorific terms, right? So it's, it's in far more than just where you see a word pop up. I I, I will say this, uh, when I was trying to show people that this concept was a very thoroughly biblical concept, they would want to argue Romans and the law and so forth and so on. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to write about how honor and shame influences the Bible. And I'm going to take on Romans. Okay. Because if I can show you that honor and shame are, are pervasive and important in Romans, well, then I win the whole argument. Because that's the most so-called legal book in the New Testament. Because they'll give me Habakkuk or Jonah or some other, again, some other minor prophet that they ne- never read. And sure enough, it, I mean, it's there perpetually. And I think misreadings actually perpetuate shame. Like misreadings yeah. of Romans 7 yeah. actually you know, perpetuate shame. I, I kept finding that people didn't notice things like in 9 – Romans nine thirty three and 10 uh, 11 or ten twelve. Paul repeats the exact same verse about those who believe will not be put to shame right you know he's talking about justification it's justification in terms of not being put to shame I'm like why are we not talking about this more pervasively because this is going to help us contextualize also uh for the whole world right and so talking to Chinese when they saw these they got so excited because uh they actually had something that made sense to friends and family because I said this is super chinese yeah
0: oh here's here's my question so you were I, you kind of said in passing i just want to make sure i heard you right that the chinese you're working with didn't didn't naturally have these categories is it because they had just been they've had we've had so much exported kind of american theology and that's where they got their kind of like christian understanding
1: yes uh because if this is what the church is traditionally believed then so should we Uh, but as soon as you showed them, they really care about the scripture. If you can show them scripture, they're they're okay. Uh, and so once you showed them this and you show it thoroughly, I mean, they just ran with it. It was so exciting. And that's, and that's one reason, uh, why I used to have my, my Chinese pseudonym. You know, some people found it offensive. I understand that. But the part of the reason was, is that all of this research came out of, uh, conversations with these house church Believers who didn't have any voice, and I thought one of the things that was a concern was like, I need to honor them with reflecting that this is these are their ideas. Actually, it's it's their lens and the conversation with them when they helped me to see scripture with the honor shame lens that that wow, that's there and that's there and that's there. And so once the Chinese were, felt like they could expand beyond tradition legal categories, then it became natural to them. Interesting. That's, yeah.
0: I, f- I found that, yeah, as I travel, traveled the world a bit, like, yeah, I'm kind of shocked at how American or like to how the theology is, is much more American than, uh, or Western, I shouldn't say American, but Western. I've, I've,
1: yeah, I've been in many sermons, listened to many preachers in China that preach in Chinese, because uh, everything we did was in Chinese. And it sounded like a sermon I would hear in an Alabama Baptist church. Mm, wow. It was I was just <laughs> blown away at the lack of Chineseness of the theology because we're not talking about the academic guild here. we're talking about on- the-ground pastors and so that was what was so exciting was the when you help say, hey, you know how you see the world this way yeah now what would happen if you remember that as you're reading this and they would notice these things and it became so exciting because their evangelism just took off hmm. and they had and they had language to describe you know, their experience and, and whatnot. One of the reasons why this matters really a big deal is because in China, it was felt that you had to be either be Chinese or Christian. And I had a, uh, I've had multiple people uh, say, you know what? I feel like I can finally be a Chinese Christian uh, because they didn't feel like they had to be a Western Christian, but then a Chinese in the rest of their life. So that's a huge deal.
0: So is it starting to change? Is there now more like theological works and things that are coming from, From Chinese leaders? um, Are they still drinking from (laughs) the Western cup of theology?
1: Yeah. And and I don't want to throw Western theology under the bus because all all cultures have their benefits and limitations, but it really comes down to uh, money and training. Okay. You know, but so, like, what gets published, what gets translated, right? I mean, so, yes, there is an increase, but when you're dealing with a persecuted church, there's only so much that you're gonna see a lot of that. It's always gonna be the funded, you know, government church or the Western church that's gonna be able to get resources in.
0: This episode is sponsored by Athletic Greens. Okay, so I've tried all kinds of different nutrition drinks off and on over the last 15 years. And the one that I found to be the most effective is Athletic Greens, which is now called AG1. Just so you know, I've been taking AG1 for about nine months Prior to them sponsoring this podcast. Okay, so I'm not just supporting some random product. I'm promoting AG1 because I've already been a huge fan of it. AG1 is like a nutrition bomb to the body. One scoop of AG1 just saturates your system with a wide variety of nutrients. It's packed with uh, 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, um, it actually replaces a lot of other, other supplements that you won't need anymore, like taking a multivitamin every single day. And it contains various nutrients that supports your gut health. And I don't know if you've, you know, if you know this, but your the, your gut health is like so essential to the overall health of your body. I've experienced a noticeable difference in my energy, my alertness, and just like my overall well-being by taking AG1 at least once a day. Sometimes like when I'm traveling, I'll take it twice a day. And one scoop of AG1 a day, I mean, it's a price of like, it's less than like a cup of coffee a day. So well worth the money. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. So go to athleticgreens.com forward slash T-I-T-R. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash T-I-T-R. Check it out. Well, okay, let's talk about your pseudonym then because I know that, that I mean, most people aren't going to, it was something that kind of flared up on, on social media fairly recently. So you have gone by, uh jackson Wu for up until he said like a month ago or something um and mm-hmm. can you explain the the reason why you took on that name
1: yeah i i needed need a, uh, a pseudonym because I, I somebody asked me to publish an article and so uh we need a pseudonym but at the same time because these thoughts were coming out from our, these conversations it just felt like i was stealing to just have uh a name that didn't honor my chinese brothers and sisters especially the house church who didn't have any kind of public voice my wife and i decided okay let's do this is you know like i said a long time ago where we decided okay let's do a chinese name so it's jackson Wu. so it honors them it, and i didn't think anything of it, it a one off article and then i ended up publishing something else and then my dissertation drew a lot of attention and then all of a sudden now i had like a little bit of a a, a paper trail and and so it, the name just kept going on uh, for security reasons and basically to honor the Chinese culture uh, as well, because to them in the mainland Chinese context, it's honoring to take a Chinese name. When Chinese, mainland Chinese heard this, they said, Oh, you love China so much. You have a Chinese yeah. name.
0: So it's not, they, they don't see it as cultural appropriation.
1: Oh, that's a non-category to them. Absolutely not. They—they they, they, When I've talked to Chinese about this concept, it's utterly confusing to them that no, this is a really a, western and more north american type conversation that's going on so when i came back to the states, i was completely caught off guard by these dynamics because i mean mainland chinese culture and asian american cultures are not the same and but sometimes you're expected to to i don't know they hold you by the, the rules of asian american culture when i was like i've always been thinking mainland culture and honor them so Mm -hmm. Anyways, it was it was a big it was a big whiplash for me.
0: So, did you experience from Asian American culture, Asian Americans, that they felt like it was appropriation, but mainland not not
1: until the Twitter stuff happened. Okay, I mean, my biggest supporters have been mainland Chinese and Asian Americans. Uh, I've been invited to uh, Asian American uh, uh, churches and and talks. I was invited to be a part of the Asian American theology committee. Uh, for ETS oh, Evangelical right. Theological Society even and they knew I was white uh, but they s- felt like what I was writing was helpful and and whatnot so uh, they, those have always been my biggest supporters. it wasn't until the Twitter storm last month that I really got any kind of significant pushback from Asian Americans
0: I guess well since we're here we do need to yeah maybe, maybe fill us in on on <laughs> the just, I, I didn't have you on the talk, talk. I wanted to talk about honor shame. It's something I've been wanting to do for for many years now. Um, but it, it it's not completely unrelated, I think, because I just uh, that your your whiplash uh, experience, I think, is actually super interesting to me. You know, here you are living in China for you know a couple decades, coming back, and now facing this really kind of different cultural context where you're being accused of some things that. I don't know. It's just, it was, it was interesting to me. I, I that's the only where I can bizarre, maybe <laughs>
1: better term. So yeah. Can you may, maybe explain what you're talking about? Yeah. Like, what, yeah what there's, the... you know, yeah, there's a whole, I mean, it's, it's a little bit confusing when you think about this solidarity uh, among and a collective identity uh, that you share as a church in China. And then you c- come back to the States and there's such fragmentation and everybody's so angry. That was one of the biggest things that caught me off guard was how angry just in general, people have been in America and you understand about loyalty to your group and, and take, being family in, in China. And then here, uh, it was like, oh, the, the family is so fragmented. Mm. Uh, and so that that was a big thing that kind of threw me off. There's a lot of silos, you know, like you know, i was talking about America being an honor, shame culture. We still have our honor, shame groups. But we think we call it. We think we're individuals when really they're just our tribes and our silos, and you know whatever names we want to we want to put to it. And the truth is that we can't please, We can't get honor from all the groups. And the thing is that you know Twitter tends to represent just a few subcultures. Yeah. That not necessarily the broader subculture. And so you're. It's weird because it's like there's this value for being an individual, but yet you are still being judged by the collective it's it's this weird tension that america is in right now
0: can you explain what happened just so people for people that are yeah yeah,
1: yeah. so i uh there are people who were upset that i had the pseudonym jackson Wu because they were saying it was cultural appropriation that i was being disrespectful or hurting um asian americans because i had a woo surname uh at the same time i had critiqued a a book uh, written by um, a Black woman. I'm not sure if she's African-American or is African because she's originally from Ethiopia. I'm not sure if she uh, became an American. And so putting those two together caused a real big firestorm uh, to where it was came across as me pretending to be an Asian man to critique a Black woman's book as and as if I was trying to get one over. And it was just basically a perfect storm. Yeah. I, I, it was just not, none of that was my intent. Um, and so I had to give up the pseudonym Uh, so I just go, by Brad now, and now my books have been switched to Brad Vaughn and not Jackson Wu. Why
0: did you give it up? Do you think it's wise to give it up or was it, did you didn't want to put up with the storm anymore? Or do you think
1: there was like, well, for one thing, it was forced on me because some, uh, believers or some people online put my face and my name together, which for me was frankly really heartbreaking because people didn't realize the security concerns that could be linked to my ongoing work because I mean, that's a threat to the Chinese church because people don't know how much I'm in inner in tide. And so that was just kind of forced on me at that point. And so I didn't, in that sense, I didn't have a choice, but on the other hand, I'm like, I'd also want it to be a distraction to the message that I'm trying to get out in the future. So if that's what I need to do, then that's what I need to do. I want to be loving and I'm, I'm trying to contextualize.
0: on um, In it's, both directions coming back. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's It's been really hard me personally uh not me personally in 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 the sense of like i feel offended it's i feel hurt at how much misunderstanding there is about the chinese church and and missions and the persecution there and and not having concern for the possible danger that people could be in because people don't know the links that i have or don't have so there's that but it's also it's been really helpful for me as just personally because you you remember how fragile your public platform is. Hmm. And I've had to ask myself if I ever lose my platform publicly and they take away all my books, am I okay with who I am and how I'm living? So that's been a really constructive thing that the Lord has done in my heart through this.
0: So they put your name and your picture on, they publicize that. Yeah. And did, did they realize that that's hindering the work among this persecuted church? I mean, that that's, you would think that that's like, did the Chinese government do that? You're like, no, did a Christian, was it a Christian that
1: did that? The Christians were were recycling, were, you know, cycling and spreading it. I mean, yeah, it was, it got pretty nasty. Um it, People don't even get that as nasty as it got online, as it did like in the Chinese church. Even people disagree, they wouldn't get like that. But I mean, it's one thing to hate, hate me, but to do that. And take out the Chinese church on the, you know, get them in trouble, possibly. That's what was heart- heartbreaking.
0: Were your Chinese brothers and sisters, did they didn't know about all this? And were they like confused? Like, why are I, our brothers and sisters in America doing this to us? I,
1: I had Chinese reach out to me and basically express anger that what is going on? This is ridiculous, you know. And so just basically being an encouragement. They just don't get China, American culture in these dynamics.
0: Yeah. Does it make you want to go back to China? <laughs>
1: we never wanted to leave. Yeah. Uh, we left because of security concerns. Okay. You know, we were hoping to eventually go back, but that's not now that can't happen. Okay. Now, that, now with this, because it's just too public now. And now my name's Brad on all the books. I, so now I can't. Yeah. And that that's saddening as well, because it also means other security sensitive countries that now I could be a threat to somebody all because they made that link.
0: So that so it's a double whammy. It not only is. Or put the Chinese Church under under threat, but now it's prevented you from doing any ongoing, or the kind of ongoing work
1: you. Wow, God, yeah, yeah, and so that that's with the grieving. So it's been like a death, you know, because you're kind of forever separated from them in a certain sense. You know,
0: has anybody reached out? No, I mean the people that maybe were part of stirring all this up, whatever, have they reached out and said, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that this is going to happen. Have they, have anybody apologized or anything or? Um... No,
1: no, no, not at all. And in fact, a lot of them have doubled down and said, and basically like, you're making excuses and, you know, they'll try to find contradictions to what I'm saying. And basically I stopped trying to explain things online because nuance that you have to explain on that. And then there's only so many words you could say. And I'm like, you know what? I can't explain to everybody to where they like it. I'm just going to take the actions I need to and then move on. I mean, I was I was called everything. At one point, I collected the insults thrown at me as I was a misogynist, racist, dehumanizing yellow face who was uh, attacking and trying to silence a black woman's worth. That's a I strung together a whole things that were said of me. And so that's it's sad to me that the American church is so much of that, you know, it's all in public. And then Chinese church, so you just don't get that. You, it's dealt with more relationally. Have you, so
0: you being gone for almost two decades, coming back, have you seen a shift in American culture? So you, wait, so you when you went over there, the internet was barely taken off. There was no social media. And now you come back where that's kind of an uh, all-consuming aspect of our culture. Is that- Yeah, have you gay seen marriage radical... wasn't even a
1: thing. Gay marriage wasn't even a thing then. Huh. And well, so yeah. a, a lot of these dynamics and uh, and- kind of social cues in terms of how you have conversation and whatnot have just so completely changed there's only so much that you can glean this from the internet right a lot of the word placing, and so like i'll say something like oh you can't say this i'm like oh i didn't know i couldn't say that right uh it's just you don't know what things convey you know because people don't understand that living a long time across cultures changes who you are I mean we are cross-cultural beings if you think about it, if you grew up in rural Arkansas and then obviously you move to New York City, you're going to be a hybrid right of, of cultures It works the same thing for people like myself and and so I mean it is what it is but I mean, i'm I'm growing from it and, and, and I'm learning from it and I'm hoping to let people through this
0: yeah how's your wife done through it?
1: <laughs> it's been hard on her yeah. uh, particularly because to appeal to one of your former guests, uh, Josh Butler, who released the beautiful union, he's one of the pastors at our church and he had a firestorm that was going on. And it was about two weeks in, it was a height of it. And then all of a sudden my stuff broke out. Oh, wow. And so you, you had both of those things going on because she's on staff at the church. Your wife. Uh, is. Yeah. She's on staff at the church. Okay. And so you had that going on. They had my stuff going on. Uh, and then our kids for them, it was really sad because, they're also tied to me and will their ability to ever minister in China be affected? You know, you just, you just don't know. What do you, uh, so what do
0: you do for work now? What's your ministry or?
1: I am the publishing and uh, marketing, uh, director for William Carey publishing. Okay. Uh, I, I came back to the, when I came back to the States, I worked with a mission organization, but COVID hurt the funding. I was unemployed for nine months and we really, and so I don't get to do a lot of the theologian missiology type stuff that i've done in the past at this point I, but i'm hoping yeah you know that i get to do more of that but that's what i'm doing now and okay. and so it's an adjacent field
0: so missions is pretty much in for the foreseeable future not um in the plan i mean yeah
1: no it's not so i mean i'll use the, the my training and my skill sets hopefully to equip uh, missions and equip the american church because like i said there's I'm seeing so many ways that shame is affecting the American church. Unhealthy ways that people deal with shame in the West, and so I hope administer here as well.
0: Yeah. What are some Yeah. What are some big What are some big picture things that you see as like major like blind spots in? Well,
1: well, yeah. like for example, uh, one way that people try to avoid shame is by removing responsibility, casting blame on genetics or the environment or you know political systems or whatever else, and uh that's one thing blame uh, so
0: blame shifting
1: a lot of blame shifting um but you know the problem with that is that it perpetuates the the lie that our worth still depends on minimizing our flaws and failures where you're like you know what yeah you have this genetic issue or this environment or whatever the systemic issue but you know what sinful flawed weak people still have worth you know um another thing is is identity people idolize uh, identity so they absolutize it as if you know, they centralize it and so if you attack any aspect of identity then you get a whole virtual holy war right
0: yeah
1: yeah um yeah people changing identities left and right you know just have, what however they want and so if cuz that I was shamed here so I take on this identity you know and so i mean i'm speaking really really big picture um, and of course the, the the one that's most popular these days is just being shameless you know you can't shame me and you're like, okay, that's actually not a good thing, you know, because to be shameless is to be a dangerous person, to not care about uh, what other people, you know,
0: shame can be a healthy deterrent. Is that, what, or how would you? Oh, know?
1: it's absolutely a healthy thing. I mean, Paul used shame, but there's healthy ways and not healthy ways of using, of using shame. Um, you know, for example, Paul, he talked spoken shameful about shameful actions, not shameful people, hmm. you know? because it's about, do you want to be this kind of person? Yeah, I do. Okay. So that's a healthy use of shame. Not a, you suck, you're terrible, you're awful. That's a bad use of shame, you know? The only way you can really deal with shame, though, well, is to expose it, to talk about it, to embrace weakness, and still affirm people's worth, you know?
0: There was a book I got sent. It's an academic book. I I think it was a dissertation called uh, Defending Shame. Have you come across this? Yeah, Tully Lau. It's an excellent book. yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, that's I, a bold uh,
0: title. As in, in, in the culture today, you know, post Brene Brown, where shame is just such a to have shame is like the worst thing. You know, I was like, oh wow, this is going to be. It. And the fact that I think he's is he? I mean, Asian American on some. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: He is. Uh, I think he. I think he's Malaysian Chinese, uh, but he's okay. American. Okay. Uh, and excellent book. It is academic, but yeah. a really solid treatment showing how Paul constructively uses shame to help construct and edify the church. Yeah. And so we're missing out on a whole big resource in scripture, honor and shame. Uh, That's a big deal everywhere. And so I'm so glad to see more and more books on this topic coming out.
0: I remember I was was in Nepal uh, several years ago and um, talking to one of our, we have a bunch of pastor friends over there and stuff. I'm talking to one pastor we're talking about like, uh, you know, sex outside of marriage and stuff. And, you know, they, they have a lot of the same, they're wrestling with a lot of the same stuff, the American churches, you know? And I, you know, I remember asking him like, so what would you do, you know, if you have a member that's, you know, is caught, you know, in a sexually immoral relationship and without hesitation, he says, well, we would, we would shame him. Like we would publicly shame him and hopefully that would bring him back to repentance, you know, without even, I'm like, I was like, almost like yeah. poking but- my coffee. I was like, Well, you He's publicly shame him, but yeah, but,
1: but it's not in the way it is here because here huh. in individualism to shame somebody is to utterly isolate them without hope because you don't have this group ties. But if somebody if you're really tied to somebody like a good buddy, good brothers, good mm-hmm. you know close and someone shames you mm-hmm. then but you you know they fundamentally love you they're for you yeah. you receive a different. And this is one reason why you can't just use these shame tactics in the church without having a really healthy sense of we are family, we are a we are a people together because honor and shame are inherently collective, group identity oriented. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they can say that because you can still shame somebody and yet they understand that you're still part of the group. Whereas in, it went, the way she's in individualistic cultures, it's seen as like, like cast utter casting out, like, you know, without any hope because you, there's not these strong ties.
0: And the communal. Yeah. And I think what he was getting uh was, you know, this as part of this body, you know, and it's a Hindu country, the church is small. So, I mean, it's, you know, very stark difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. So when this person commits this sin, it brings shame on the community, which also brings Mm -hmm. shame on the God they're trying to represent. So I Mm -hmm. almost heard him say, he didn't quite wear it like this, but if if I am hearing him right, he's kind of like, we would publicly expose the shame that he has brought on us so that we can relieve that shame. Like, you know, yeah, what, it wasn't this
1: dehumanizing Twitter shame or something, you know. I mean, yeah, there's a protection that's that's meant to meant to happen, protecting of the community as well, right? Yeah. And, and, and so it's not just a uh, we gotta take them down and, and destroy them. It's not like uh, like cancel culture is today. I mean, that's that's like the unhealthy form of, of shame in America. There's no relationship, there's they're at a distance, there's no context, but you know inside that relationship, it's, it can be a really, really helpful thing uh, because you're, you're basically saying, Hey, do you want to be this kind of person? Yeah. You're not, you know what? You're right. And it brings them back in.
0: You know, Brad cancel culture doesn't actually
1: exist. It's, it's made up. (laughs) Tell tell me and Josh about it, (laughs) (laughs) but you know what? As weird as it sounds, uh, the Lord was very encouraging to me as I just kept saying, you know what? They can't cancel me because Jesus doesn't cancel me, and so it, it was really a sweet time of drawing near the Lord, I'm trying to be teachable, you realizing that I won't. We won't always agree, but just trying to go. You know, in the end, the Lord is better than His people are acting.
0: You mentioned it kind of in passing, just kind of the disconnect between kind of these different like uh, social worlds we live in. Our embodied like neighborhood, city, church. You know where we our bodies actually are. You know then you have various online spaces and even those can be very different. I mean, Twitter is very different from like Instagram and, and Facebook, Facebook and Twitter are kind of similar in some ways, but still kind of different. But then if you look at like how representative these kind of worlds are and you enter into this, say you enter into like Twitter and you're like, Oh my gosh, is this representative? Then you, there's a study that was done that said, you know, 7% of people are responsible for 97% of all tweets. So we're dealing with a really, this is a Gallup. It was a Gallup poll that I think 25% of Americans have a Twitter account. Most of them aren't really using it much. I might once a month, maybe a lot of them are just kind of sitting there. Um, but there's a small percentage of that. I think it's, or it's a quarter of the 25%, whatever. So about 7% that are responsible for 97% of all, all the tweets. So, so you can think that this is like representative, but it really is this cloistered kind of like you know, group of people. And then you go to Facebook and it's like all people like you know, our age and older typically yeah. you know, ran and raving, and and then Instagram is like people, you know, um, I wish I had that life, you know, or you know, it's just and then all of that put together is like all of that's kind of just just part of. Our humanity is kind of expressed in these spheres, and it's just—it's yeah. just not because identity
1: is far more complex than Americans are making it out to be. We Americans tend to be like this sphere of my life is my identity, <laughs> where the truth is identity is how we're the same as some people and how we're different than other people. You know, my—you know—my identity is a compilation of various relationships. Honor shame cultures grasp this, but what I think a lot of the vitriol that you see online comes from people take one sliver of their identity. Mm. Absolutize it, and then if it's made sacred, now it's a holy war. Mm. It has to be because you're challenging my sacred identity, and because we've lost all kinds of nuance about how relationships work in collective identity. Because when I talk about honor shame, I'm talking about collective identity. You know, and collective identity is a, is a much more complex thing than Americans grasp because we have so little practice at thinking about it. But it's not hard to grasp sports culture, the military, the American South. These are all honor shame cultures.
0: Yeah, sports culture for sure. I didn't think about that. Yeah.
1: I yeah. mean, look at just watch an SEC game, you know, and you know, a football game, you know, or March Madness, right? I mean, in in what people say, we won the championship. And you're like, uh, you weren't out there. But or it's like they really stunk last night, you know. Because <laughs> we intuitively grasp this contagious yeah. shame honor thing.
0: I often be my buddies, so I'm a huge uh, Dodger fan, uh, baseball fan in general and uh, I catch myself saying we won last night too. Oh my, yeah. oh my word. And I'm very aware of kind of the we like I don't, I never, there's a whole other conversation like I n- rarely if ever use a plural pronoun to refer to my American identity. Like so I don't, it's I'll, I'll I'm trying to get in the habit of using it as my global Christian identity. So I would never say like our troops like because the global church doesn't have a military. Yeah. But then it's funny when I When it comes to baseball, I just (laughs)
1: actually, we won. I'm like, oh,
0: crud, like I'm doing it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I think that when you start grasping how these things affect us normally, this collective identity, honor, shame, you you not only realize stuff like that, but you reclaim the church. Because if from individualistic perspective, the individualistic lens wipes out the need for the church. What's the point? Me and Jesus were cool. The church is just a bonus, right? But Conversion becomes not just a. Uh, I was in. I was in this bad category now I'm with Jesus, but it's a conversion from one group to another. Mm-hmm. I was fundamentally saw myself as a part of some identity in the world, but now I'm fundamentally aligned with Christ. I'm part of this group, the people of God, the church, right? And we so, don't have
0: that in America. I mean, right? That's just you get saved and then you go to a church, and I mean, it's fairly yeah. rare. I think. I mean, I'll it is what it is but i mean i think it's fairly rare to have that conversion to this like i i get it a lot like in uh you know i do a lot of work in faith and sexuality and i'm always gonna see, you know people are like how do we reach the lgbtq community you know the, the community that's not you know inside the church and i'm like well I, i'm almost a little worried about that like that's a really strong mm. multi-layered community that has a history of of mistreatment and, and, you know, um, abuse and especially, you know, the church, church hurt, shame and all that stuff. If an individual from that tight community actually got saved, what's the new community? Are they going to experience the same kind of community, especially if they're still, you know, they're still attracted to the same sex or still, you know, have a sexuality that's very different than many people in the church. And, and I'm like, what?
1: it it, questions like this are one of the very first questions that you'll hear from chinese or uh, arabs or uh, people from indian people from different collectivist cultures is they want to know what community will i be going to uh like what does this mean for my belonging to this community and and literally first things they're thinking of and and i heard a a a Muslim woman say like she was like reluctant to become a believer because you're like she didn't see any kind of church round. She's like, "Okay, you're asking me to leave my community for what? <laughs>
0: mm.
1: You know." Yeah. So they saw this as a, a conversion from one community to another. It doesn't mean that you give up being female or black or a Dodger fan or whatever else. It just means that those are not ties because Jesus is absolute. You know, the people of God, those who are loyal to Him, become your fundamental collective identity. <laughs>
0: And so, not just because I think most Christians in the West would say, "Yeah, I get converted to Christ, and now Christ is on the throne of my life." But it still is very individualistic. The 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 the, 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 the vertical kind of one-on-one identity might be reoriented, maybe. Um, but the communal. That's the most identity individualistic shifters. thing you could
1: possibly say. Yeah, I I don't make Jesus the Lord of my life. Right. Jesus is Lord, whether or not he I recognize it or not.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Right. I mean, you you see how even our language betrays this you don't need the church when when we're talking like that right and if we don't have the church so many other things get messed up like how do you become disciples outside of the community of faith
0: i would imagine the whole idea that you can be kind of a christian and not be in community with other believers would just be so foreign in the chinese that doesn't make sense no
1: no absolutely not it's just nonsensical it's a like a contradiction they focus on who who are we you know Not just, have I done something right or wrong? You know, we tend to think, what's the most minimal thing? Which is what, think about that, a guilt culture is all about transgression. Have I transgressed or not transgressed, right? And we kind of take that same mentality with faith. What's that boundary line where I've done just enough or not done enough, right, to be in, right? Whereas uh, our non-Western majority world friends are thinking about more, who are we? That's a whole different kind of, a whole different orientation.
0: Yeah, interesting. Well, Brad, it's this is great getting to know you. Um, do you still I mean, oh, you go by Brad now, not, not <laughs> yeah. Guy. Is that is that hard to get used to now for twenty years being Jackson? I mean, or it,
1: it has been weird. It has been weird. Uh and other people told me it's weirder who talked to me because I, I mean I just went by Jackson, you know, people yeah. and and so yeah, it has been an adjustment. And with seeing my name on my books as Brad Vaughn now is <laughs>
0: it's hot,
1: yeah. It feels like I'm exposed because you've lived twenty years trying to keep everything secret. Wow.
0: <laughs> That's wild. Well, thank you, man. And love your rawness and your realness. And uh, yeah, thanks for the work you're doing. And and it was great getting to know you.
1: Hey, thanks. I appreciate that. And if anybody wants to, you know, look me up online to stay up on this stuff, my website is savinggodsface.com, savinggodsface.com. And so they can follow up on some of these things if they want. Awesome.
0: Cool, man. Thank you. Appreciate it.